you have an intelligence community that has been in a revolution over the last 20 years where they themselves and their relationship to the public has had to radically change. You see that in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, where now there's a, a more of like a public component to you know, open source in the sense of the intelligence community appears to be growing an arm that deals with the public in a much more robust way, including with multilateral partners. You know, every, everything's been changing. So I think that we have to ask ourselves, you know, why are things the way they are? Because there, it's clear, no doubt, the Snowden releases would not have happened 50 years ago. They just wouldn't. This month, we welcome Alexa O'Brien to the podcast. Alexa is an analyst and writer focused on intelligence. Her work has been published in the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, Wired, Vice News, Guardian, The Daily Beast. She's also been featured on the BBC, PBS, NPR, and Public Radio International. Alexa obtained her Bachelor of Arts at Kenyon College, majoring in political science. She obtained her master's in applied intelligence at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and was awarded the 2020 Tropaya Award in Applied Intelligence for Outstanding Student. Now, Alexa resides in Seattle and New York City. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome, Alexa O'Brien, to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a phenomenal conversation. But first, I want to just give you a few minutes to give your background, who you are, and if you have anything that you're doing currently, you can certainly promote that. And we'll do that at the end of this as well. Well, my name is Alexa O'Brien, and I am, uh, I, this is always really hard for me. I'm probably not like your typical security researcher slash journalist. I you know, came out of the internet. That's how I always like to describe it, you know, around the 211, 212 era. And I have a background in poli-sci. I studied at Kenyon, which has a very peculiar poli-sci department because it's focused on classical political theory. So it looks at politics and security statecraft from the point of view of sort of fundamental ideas, not so much about, it's very, it's sort of based in ancient texts. Okay. And I really actually became known, I professionalized as a from a blogger to a sort of professional journalist. I was probably a pro amateur in the beginning through the espionage trial of Chelsea Manning. And that was like 212, 213. And then I just was, be, I, I was a professional from then on. And I've worked with folks from, you know, Bill Arkin. I've worked for Air Wars. I've done, oftentimes now I'm pulled in as a researcher or fact checker on documentary films that deal with a component of intelligence or law enforcement and that require either sometimes a fact checker require who can handle kind of nuance in a let's say controversial like highly charged kind of or or misunderstood or not properly or fully known event like, for example, I was the fact checker on the Gary Betzner doc that was Invisible Pilot that just came out on HBO because Betzner, you know, claims, you know, he claimed to Congress that he was an asset for the CIA and involved, you know, in, involved in the Iran-Contra affair and such and other things. So, you know, obviously, I've also was the fact checker on Cue Into the Storm. I have a familiarity with online communities and online culture as much as I have actually a, a master's degree in, in intel analysis. 
So I'm able to kind of float both sides of that line and ultimately just kind of look at those things with a sense of nuance. And also I'm informed, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm informed about these things as much as one can be as a civilian non-governmental intel analyst slash researcher. Right. So I think when when I was leading up to all of this, I, I thought we would just talk about, you know, the ethics of intelligence analysis and journalism and, and that kind of stuff. But I, I really do want to touch on to start just to start out and we can talk about as long as you want to talk about it, the, the Chelsea Manning case. Um, and so for anybody who's listening who's been under a rock they and doesn't know who Chelsea Manning is, can you explain, first of all, who Chelsea Manning is, and then we can get into that discussion on on how you were given access to, to the court proceedings and how you kind of became the premier journalist for that, that event? You know, I'm going to tell you the real story because it's so bizarre. Like, I, you know, sometimes people are like, well, why did you cover the Chelsea Manning trial? Or how did you come to do that? And like, my honest answer is, I have no clue. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I literally, all I know is I sat down after cleaning my house uh, way back in, it was probably 210. I, I had hosted, it was a Christmas party actually. So this was after Cablegate or the publication of hundreds of thousands of U.S. State Department cables by the organization WikiLeaks. And I had seen this albino, blonde-haired person sort of flitting across the TV screens for like weeks, but I had not really actually thought anything of it. And I cleaned my house because I had about 15 people over, opened the newspaper up to take a rest, and I started reading about it in the paper. And I became obsessed. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. So it's like I didn't have even have a Twitter account. I went on Twitter and, you know, I always have had a knack for finding who I need to find and how I need to find information. I mean, I found I found my mother's father when I was 21 in three days and she had been looking for him for 10 years. So like I just have a knack for knowing how to find get, you know, get rid of the noise. And so like I came upon this blog called WikiLeaks Central. And I just like started, you know, noticing people talking about it. And I participated in those Twitter conversations. And then I just became a blogger at that place. And WikiLeaks Central, uh, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, with the WikiLeaks organization, there's like layers upon layers upon layers of like compartmentalization. And so I, 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 I mainly blogged about the Arab Spring at, at that place. And then, you know, somebody needed someone to cover the Manning court-martial process. She had been in, in pretrial confinement at that point. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it, you know, because nobody else wanted to do it. And I started live blogging it. Not not live. I started blogging about it. But I also started live, like, tweeting in between sessions of the court-martial. And, you know, it's one of those things, like, people are like, well, what motivated you? What really motivated me is that there has been so much... Everybody had this opinion about the Manning trial, you know, at the time. There were these kinds of like two or three sort of, I would say, branches of talking points about the trial. And I wanted to know, I thought, you know, this trial, we're going to really figure out what happened. I wanted to know what happened. And so I started transcribing the trial because there was no, unlike federal criminal trials, which have a First Amendment right to the public access. And 
public oversight of the judiciary is a kind of fundamental constitutional. But obviously, court martials are not things that you have always in courtrooms, you know, in peacetime. I mean, they're they happen in war. So there isn't in terms of like precedent, legal precedent, there isn't a precedent that the public has a right to court martial records. So due to the fact that this court martial was going to be high profile, I mean, she had basically, you know, stolen hundreds of thousands of U.S. government military documents. It was the first time anything like this had happened that we know of, that it was like, you know, everybody was like WTF, you know. (laughs) And so the judge had ruled that she did not want court records out in the public realm because she didn't want to corrupt the panel that was going to judge the defendant. Ultimately, Manning opted for a military trial by judge only. But that was the that was the legal rationale. But, you know, at the time, you know, obviously the army, like any bureaucracy, wasn't exactly the they wanted to control the narrative. And the narrative that they had was angry homosexual, you know, tries to destroy U.S. government. And, you know, there was just so much like. Well, was there a moment where they thought that maybe she just wanted to get out? of the military as a whole. And that's why she was trying to do it. I never heard that. I don't look where we're but I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. Like, did you hear that somewhere? So I will let the audience know that, you know, I was in Iraq when that that was going on. And that was for some of the conversations in the intel community. I was a human intelligence analyst at the what was Abu Ghraib, but became Camp Cropper in Iraq. And that was sort of the conversations that were going on was, I think, not me personally, but amongst the group of us that, well, she just wants to get out of the military. That's why at that time, this is not to dead name anybody, but at that time it was Bradley Manning. We had all assumed he was a homosexual and had come out that way to get out of the military. That's and right. This was sort of a follow. Manning had not come out as trans until after the court martial. Right. There were rumors But this is something that her defense attorney and her decided not to actually make that public. I mean, it's it's a crazy way to get out of the military. I'll tell you what. Yeah, it's not a good way. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting to me. I, I don't discredit what you're saying because I have also heard from different types of practitioners, including former intelligence practitioners, you know, different sorts of theories or even I've heard from even people who claim that different aspects of, you know, the government's rationale for certain things or her rationale. So, you know, what we hear in the news is not the full story all the time. Yeah. And 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 honestly, that's why I'm trying to do this kind of stuff, because we don't get the whole story, you know, from from the I know this this have this was you can correct my years if I'm wrong on this, but I do believe it was like 2009 where the documents were given to WikiLeaks and then 210, early 210. But okay. trying to like look at the charge. It's been a while since I've looked. There is a very, very nuanced timeline. I don't know what the government's the government's rationale. I have to I have to look at the indictment again really closely. One could it it would have been two ten. I mean, okay. yeah, yeah. See, I I have a small brain. Honestly, I don't remember a lot of the stuff. I just track this on. Honestly, I did a lot of tracking things based off of where I was deployed at a certain time, which 2010, I still would have been deployed to Iraq at that point. So so that does make sense. 
some of the most compelling testimony at her court martial to me was the testimony of her commanding officer. Because, like, I don't think anybody disputed the good order and discipline charges against her. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether somebody looks at her as a conscientious objector who is, like, you know, motivated by good, quote unquote, intentions, or whether one disagrees with her. I mean, there was no question that it impacted the people around her directly, who, who, her, and it also impacted her commanding officer. And, you know, you could feel that actually in the media operations center too, listening to his testimony of like, because, you know, obviously they were, this was at a time when they were, you know, folks were transitioning out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work that they had done that they felt was positive sort of was overshadowed by this breach. And then everybody's careers that were anywhere near it were in some cases destroyed. So there was a lot of sadness, I think, you could feel. Yeah, I I think as far as within the intelligence community, within the army, there was a lot of pushback of, yes, I do understand the CIA is doing some of this stuff. The U.S. military is doing some of this stuff, but releasing this information actually does more harm to national security. Did did you get that sense at all in reading what, what she had released, that it had been a, it was a national security issue? Um, well, it definitely was a national security issue just on its face because obviously it didn't look good for the United States, number one. <laughs> Uh, you, I think that's different from national security, in my opinion. Though. But it, it, I mean, it is a national security issue because it's so tied into like the you know the information partner, the intelligence partnerships we have, right? Multiple partners, and if you look at like how the U.S. obtains intelligence, the various ways it does. One of the main ways it does is through these intelligence partnerships. So anything that makes partners like, especially big partners like you know, NATO, NATO countries, Western Europe, you know, or like, you know, singularly unique partners like Britain, hesitant to like give you information. That's a problem. I think also like the battlefield has changed so much in the last 15 years that it's so reliant on intelligence that that intelligence component becomes even more sort of sacred, so to speak, to the warfighting function, you know. And I think that like, you know, but to, I, I'm 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 giving you the 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 lame chicken shit answer to like your <laughs> question. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to it and answer it like in a in a fair way. My understanding of these leaks has evolved. I think it's important to recognize that there are n- there are multiple interests at play in these leaks. Okay, and that one doesn't one doesn't erode the other. Okay. So and also when it comes to damage or harm, harm is statutory language, right? Like, it, 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 you know, it actually is like legally speaking, just the disclosure is harm, you know, mm-hmm. or espionage. You don't have to like, pr- you know, prove harm, so to speak, like in, in the legal sense. If you have a NDA with the government and you leak material, whether it causes actual harm, so to speak, or not, it's it's the potential for harm. But in the more social or the context that we're talking about, you know, society or nationally, our government. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a, one. Let me just say, you know, the harm is also with these kinds of leaks is not something that ends. So one of the things the government brought up, which I actually think is a valid point to consider, is that when you have a leak of this magnitude of this sort of like broadness, you 
have the discrete harm that you can have. Like, for example, you can make the case and the government made the case uh, and you can even extrapolate on it that in Afghanistan, because obviously Iraq war ended. But, you know, when you are when WikiLeaks before Manning published all these equipment lists back in, I think it was 2008, everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, that's not a big deal, whatever. But, you know, that's the kind of material that can be used again, U.S. like tanks and vehicles that didn't have mine resistant IED resistant capabilities at the time. Right. Right. So, you know, and that you could say like that plays into Iranian interests in Iraq at that time. You know, at the same time, though, I think that it would be it would just not be true. Every journalist I've talked to, including people at Papers of Record, have benefited from the State Department cables. For example. I mean, they are a reference um, for them. And, you know, I so I so, so to, to just sort of I think that it's important and, and vital that journalists acknowledge. I mean, Bill Bill Arkin would disagree with me. He thinks that journalists are hypocrites if they don't acknowledge. But I don't actually agree with him because I think that any breach, especially of a particular interest like national security interest, has to be considered, has to be taken seriously. Now, you might agree or disagree with the government, but you have to consider it because there are multiple interests at play with the same material. And so that sort of ties in a little bit more to the ethics of it. And the shortest answer I'm going to give you is, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah. what? which leak are we talking about? Because it's so broad. I, I know definitely that there's stuff in that that was even classified that I don't know, but I'm reasonably certain that most of the stuff that I've seen that was confidential or that didn't name people or whatever was not necessarily damaging, you know, to the level of like taking someone out and shooting them in the head in the back of the shed. You know what I mean? At the same time, though, I, I definitely do think that there were leaks that were damaging to U.S. national interests. You know, it's a it's 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 not a zero sum game. You know, it's well, I don't know. Maybe it is a zero sum game. It's a there's a large gray area between those two social interests. Secure. Yeah, definitely. I, I you know, I feel the exact same way, even though I I harp a lot on on journalists and, you know, just just trying to be out there to to make a buck. Do you see we'll get so we'll talk about the ethics of it, but I also want to get into into something else. And I'm very sorry that I brought you on here and we're gonna talk mostly about Chelsea Manning and and leaking Intel stuff, but but I'm so fascinated about it because I've changed my opinion on this over the last decade. So the first thing I want to ask is what is your opinion on the ethics of journalists basically calling out the military industrial complex, but profiting from the industrial military complex at the same time? Well, first, before I answer that question, because I don't know, first of all, journalists calling out, can you give me an example or can you tell me like, just give me an example or you don't have to even name a journalist, but give me an example of like what that what that looks like to you. So, yeah, I, I won't name specific publications, but it's, you know, when when I was in and, and talking to people that I know within the military, we get this feeling that journalists are out to get the military. They're not really supportive of the military. There are articles, you know, while I'll say while I was out in Yemen, articles were being released about our locations in, you know, it wasn't even black sites. It was just personal locations of where we were. And, and they were making money off of releasing that information. So Is you, there... Sorry, me, go ahead. Yeah. Do you mean like, for example, like with the Snowden releases, like you have like... Journalists- yeah, so that was going to be my follow-on was the Snowden stuff. 
Or are we just talking about, I mean, the, the common example used in the scenario that you're talking about is like the claim that I think it was the New York Times. So don't quote me on that. I have to double check. But the New York Times releasing information about bin Laden's cell phone. And then after that, bin Laden never used a cell phone. That was oftentimes that actually isn't true. I, you know, but but it was a story that was floated at the time. And when I say it's not true, I'm not suggesting that your concerns are not important. I'm just saying that that particular example was found to not actually be true. But, you know, this notion that like journalists have no problem like releasing information um, about uh, U.S. military operations or intelligence operations, and then they get the notoriety of having like leaked something. Yeah. So so then I'll, I'll get very specific since you since you talked about the New York Times and that the sort of floating the piece about bin Laden. So for for me, it was Washington Post put out an article showing certain sites for special operations forces out, you know, within Africa, the Middle East that no one knew about at the time, which if looking back on it now could have led to what actually happened in Sanaa, where they breached the site there and sort of overran the embassy of Sanaa and our site of our house that we had there. So you're asking me what I think about that. Well, I'm just, well, yeah, so I'm, I'm talking just about like, well, does person. that conversation happen? The, what's the ethical significant, you know, is there an ethics background to should we actually release this or should we kind of to keep it? Because I just, so I'm not, a, I'm not a journalist and, and I don't know all of the things that happen within a, a newsroom where something important like that comes out and I'm sure an editor or somebody says, hey, we got to get on this. Yeah, I think what's important, you know, I have talked about these types of examples, not that specific one that you've brought up, but I've talked about these types of examples with different journalists, including journalists that may have been involved in stories like that or that story or whatever. And, you know, my my overall thinking about this particular issue is that it's really vital that the U.S. government and the military have a good working relationship with journalists. And a lot of these issues are fundamentally ethical because like because a journalist like a, a warfighter. OK, a journalist has a social role like a doctor or a lawyer. Right. They're not just that's the traditional notion of like a profession with a social role. Like they have an ethics because, you know, there's this kind of if you read any media ethics book, it says, you know, number one, like obviously the Constitution isn't a suicide pack. Right. There are right. interests in the Constitution between the Bill of Rights, Article two and, the, you know, and just like the intel intelligence practitioner has a obligation to protect the political community in their way with security and secrecy. The journalist has an also an ethical obligation and duty to reveal some information, not all information. And let, let's just like like bring this down. Why not all information? Philosophically speaking, if you're going to talk about ethics and like ethical theories, the reason it's not everything is because I'll give you a really good example. Human knowledge itself is not universal and omniscient. It's limited, right? And similarly, information has different natures. There's private information like my social security number. There is information that is not in the public interest, meaning to say it serves no public actual interest. It's not about fraud, waste, and abuse or 
deeper societal questions. So there's there's like categories. And similarly, just as many uh, commentators in civil society say, well, the intelligence community shouldn't actually have people at Gitmo doing whatever the hell they want, collecting however they want. That is actually, they don't have unlimited collection rights under natural rights theory, right? So you could also apply that to journalists or to media organizations or to libraries, intelligence agencies, slash whatever the hell they are, WikiLeaks, which claims, you know, if the critique from WikiLeaks is like, well, you know, the U.S. government shouldn't collect on whatever, what, on everything. Well, neither should they. You know, they're they're limited by the same philosophical principle. So, you know, obviously, intelligence sits within a political... I don't care what anybody says, whether you're in a parliamentary system or in a liberal democracy like ours, a constitutional liberal democracy. Intelligence, that component that's under Article 2, sits within a political process. And so... You know, when I oftentimes see people commentating on, um, I when people commenting on politicization of intelligence or commentating on that means like making intelligence political, a political football. You know, whether it's like also like going top down from like your 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 commander tells you to doctor something, the facts of something yeah. so they can whatever, or it can you know it could be bottom up too. I mean, we can just also or distributing it to Congress where it becomes a political football. Right. Which in some senses, as it becomes more political, it can also harm national security. So there's a rationale for some folks to say, you know, don't release intelligence to Congress, generally speaking, because, you know, you can't get out of the political frame. So intelligence is political in the sense that it sits within a political entity and politics is natural to human beings. So I don't think we can ever be devoid of it completely. I mean, yeah. the decisions an executive makes every, you know, annually on like our collection priorities and like where to put our attention, that's a political decision on some level. They might be informed by intel analysts and experts who tell them, you know, what areas of foreign policy are their priorities. So, you know, yeah, I think, you know, obviously journalists have really great journalists have a rabid desire to reveal things. And they probably have the same kind of psychology as a lot of intel analysts in their their struggles between secrecy and transparency, you know, in their childhood. Like, that's what that's my theory. Right. But well, I will agree with that, because just talking to you before before we started this and you talking about your your childhood or, or in your 20s, um, researching things and investigating things. I mean, that's an intel analyst, but that's you're looking for the truth. So there is this the similarity between journalism and an intel analyst where you have a desire for truth, you want to remain unbiased. But do you know if there's those questions of of that ethics of, I have this really great, and I, I say story, I get, that might not be the right term for it, but there's, I could write this very good article about this concern for, but there's some national security stuff that could come out and it could harm some people within the intelligence community. Do you know of those sort of debates back and forth? I've had them myself. I mean, there's stories I have not published for that reason. But also because like, it, and I would I would put under that, like being manipulated by sources, meaning to say like, you know, you might be a source of some information and, you know, there's a particular kind of agenda that they have. 
And for whatever reasons, you're not able to always get the full picture or enough of a picture to like be able to make a qualified ethical judgment on it. And yeah, I mean, those stories would have been great, like clout. I mean, I know that because that's why they were offered to me, you know, in some mm -hmm. level. And I just I turned them down, you know, or I or there in one case, I actually was more concerned about the mental health of the source. I felt like that they were approaching me because they were very vulnerable and going through PTSD. And like, for me, I just felt like, you know what, this person actually just needs someone to talk to. I mean, that's what's happening. And, but, you know, journalists are like good intel, intel collectors in the sense that like, you know, really great journalists probably wouldn't make the decisions that I make. Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense yeah. of, you know, there's, they're, they want to reveal, you know, they're, they're motivated, like almost obsessively to reveal just like an intel analyst himself would be trying to collect on things. And if they yeah. have hunger to reveal or to steal or whatever. Um, so, yeah, and absolutely. I, I, I know that like we can't, let me take a breath. We can't really talk about this and make journalists or intel analysts into monolithic things because we have to talk about what generation. You know, if you look at newsrooms and how they've changed, so many of the journalists that have been making big headlines, really, like, like soda docs, those people outside of Bart Gelman really didn't come out of a newsroom. Bart Gelman had, you know, his training with seasoned journalists. I mean, I know he attached himself again to the Washington Post for those, but he did it. He didn't do it on his own. Why didn't he? You know, he wanted that institutional protection. He wanted that institutional knowledge, too. Most people don't learn this anymore. And also look at like the way that there's turnover, you know, with digital overtaking and open source um, I just want to give a lot of weight to the fact that the training cycle of journalists, much like the Intel analysts, has changed so radically in 20 years. And when you lose that kind of apprenticeship culture where you're like learning in a particular and you kind of like, you know, the technician now is the workhorse. The person who collects is the workhorse. It inverts the training cycle. And then you have all these ethical issues because you have whole generations that have grown up who don't really understand uh, how government works. You have an intelligence community that has been in a revolution over the last 20 years where they themselves and their relationship to the public has had to radically change. You see that in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, where now there's a, a more of like a public component to you know, open source in the sense of the intelligence community appears to be growing an arm that deals with the public in a much more robust way, including with multilateral partners. You know, every everything's been changing. So I think that we have to ask ourselves, you know, why are things the way they are? Because there, it's clear, no doubt, the Snowden releases would not have happened 50 years ago. They just wouldn't. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Right. Yeah, so I want to touch on the sort of the Snowden thing. So my first question with that, and man, I don't, I don't even know, Alexa, how long this is going to go because I could probably talk to you for four or five hours and I won't do that to you. How, how but, your podcast normally? Usually about an hour, but I just leave it up to you 
whenever you have to go, we will stop the conversation. For as long as you want. I mean, I don't want to give you more work. So I I can try to make my answers shorter if that makes it helpful or easy. So it's it's not going to be difficult at all to produce this. Um, And I I want to touch on all of this stuff because I have tons of questions. And and, and I'm just so fascinated by your career. I am fascinated as much as I talk about journalists and and I probably say some disparaging things that I shouldn't say. I'm still learning as as a guy, but I do want to get into all this stuff. So I'm going to start with the Snowden versus Manning information. Do you see a difference between the two releases? Absolutely. I'd love to to get all of your 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 opinions, all the facts on that, definitely. Because I I feel the same way. I'll say that initially, but I, I would love to get all of the information from you. I mean, the, the, look, I. I it's. I mean, I haven't really thought about this subject in a couple, probably like half a year. So, you know, you when you, I am an expert on the Manning prosecution. You know, probably the only civilian expert. I mean, to, to the degree that I understand that case, and also the U.S. investigations of WikiLeaks, both the intelligence ones and the criminal that also tie in with Manning now with this. You know, the indictment against Assange, Julian Assange, oh, yeah. editor in chief of WikiLeaks, or was the former editor in chief of WikiLeaks. Um, who is now in in pretrial confinement or whatever confinement he is in in the UK? So how are they different? Well, for what the classifications were different. First of all, Manning was really other than the U.S. State Department leaks was predominantly military documents from CENTCOM AOR and area of operations and. You know, the Southcom component of Gitmo even fits into the CENTCOM kind of area. So that you could look at it. I mean, if you look at it from an analytical standpoint, if you want to make a case against WikiLeaks, hypothetically speaking, like, you know, like looking at it from an analytic point of view, one could argue that the Manning releases were part of WikiLeaks focus on CENTCOM area of operations that started with, you know, the Iraq and Iraq property lists right pre manning and that as they in two in the 212 to 213 era right before the snowden releases and obviously sarah harrison of wikileaks was with snowden en route to russia i i actually i don't know if you know this but i actually did live with her for six months no i, I did not know that okay so <laughs> i should put that yeah, I mean that that's out that that's pretty much it's public knowledge. I don't know how widely known it, but there, there's no like you know it's it's on my website. Um, so that kind of period of WikiLeaks started to switch over to more sig- signals intelligence interest, and even before Snowden, they had signals related releases. And although the material was published by non WikiLeaks journalists, all the journalists outside of Bart Gelman had association or support they were you know to wikileaks and if you look at the some of the second source so second signal source material that was released that wasn't snowden but it was signals related that wasn't published by wikileaks that happened at the same time everyone thinks it's all snowden but it it wasn't that material was always given to a journalist who had a connection to wikileaks so what's the difference between the two? Well, one is obviously, you know, I guess you would call it foreign intelligence because it's dealing with the State Department and or the you know, SIGACs, the significant activity reports, um, you know, from Iraq, the battlefield reports. Those were all like 
you know, had a particular category. And then the signals intelligence and, and the classification was obviously wildly different. What's, what Snowden released, despite whatever he has, he said early on, and Greenwald also said early on about, you know, the responsibility and how it was handled was different than Manning, et cetera, et cetera. That's not really true because the, you know, the the difference there is obviously like, well, I would say that the the damage ostensibly in terms of like the collection capabilities of the United States versus, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's probably comparing apples to oranges. Manning's, nothing was top secret. I mean, there was nothing about see With Snowden, you're talking about top secret compartmented information. And so how it impacted immediately U.S. collection capabilities was said to be catastrophic. I think that was the term that was used. You know, I don't think you, I think it's fine to agree with that. I mean, like, I don't know why people, even who people who advocate for Snowden would like want to pretend that, you know, that that isn't like a, a real consideration. I think you could actually make a case, like narrowly speaking, like that the Verizon order had a public interest, you know, because it was a really straight up constitutional issue. Um, but I think that, you know, to say that Snowden only released material that dealt with U.S. collection on U.S. citizens and or even like private citizens across the world, if you want to really like, you know, talk about, you know, what are the legal limits internationally speaking on like, you know, who's the appropriate person to target? You know, you, you know, he released material that had or he leaked material to journalists that had to do with U.S. collection capabilities on uh, U.S. collection on Russian military capabilities. I mean, that is not in the public interest, you could argue. That would be, compl I mean, no one would be shocked the U.S. was collecting on Russian military. Why would you think that that was, so, you know, they're, they're different in a lot of different ways. Can you help me, like, wrap my head around this? Because I, I am not a fanboy of Edward Snowden. I, I have come out publicly against what he did as far as the national security and, and intelligence collection. Not to say the U.S. government wasn't doing that. Obviously, they they are. And well, I'm not, not to say that they continue to do that. But so Snowden is looked as like a hero to a certain sect of the U.S. population. And, and Manning doesn't get talked about at all anymore. Is that just because Manning was convicted, arrested and we pushed to the side? Or is there something else going on there? I think you have to look at the types of leaks. I mean, the, there was a technical press that was set up that had been looking at these kinds of FISA issues prior to the Snowden leaks. And so when you look at like, you know, the material and why it hit so big and why it was covered, it's partly because there was a technical tech press that was completely prepared for it in a certain way. And that, you know, were part of the kind of social media ecosphere. I think when it came to the Iraq war, I mean, I, I don't think we would be stretching our imaginations to the American press wasn't paying attention to the war. First of all, you know what I mean? Like, as it was, I mean, like, you know, and the U.S. media outside of a couple papers of record and some very focused journalists, war coverage in the U.S. is really driven by journalists and not by papers or institutions. Just I know that I did a study on it, you know, so that's part of the reason. Second reason is that, you know, Manning was wide open by the time she, she was caught, you know, in Iraq and put into pretrial confinement. And so the 
you know, WikiLeaks and Snowden and all the people around it, they learned from her, her example. You know, they 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 were prepared. You, you know, they've said that and they've said that publicly. I would say that even Mike looking at that, in, you know, milieu in the 213 era, they were, you know, the way that they marketed the, you know, they, they sold their rights to Stone for his documentary, you know, all yeah. that. They were totally prepared. And very much prepared, like, vis-a-vis, like, this is my inference from it, like Hayden was prepared when he talks about, you know, to congressional co- co- committees in the worldwide brief. I don't remember what year it was where he talked about there was that one movie about the NSA. Good. I think the WikiLeaks organization and those particular actors, those journalists, they knew on some or media commentators or propagandists, however you want to term them, I think you could probably put a different label depending on who is it is. They all kind of knew that they had to have a certain narrative. So, and I should say, you know, I am not, I'm not a fan of Snowden. And I think Snowden, I mean, Snowden allegedly, and this is what I was told, he also warned Sarah Harrison about me. He said to her to watch out for me because he thought that I was clever. And what he probably picked up on was my autistic sort of sensibility for like being able to see through bullshit. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I feel like I'm like talking, like, I don't want to like break people's ears with my monotone voice right now. No, this is, this is actually incredible stuff because it's, it's a lot of stuff that, you know, personally I talk with, with my wife, who's my co-host usually on the podcast because I, I was in, been in the intelligence community since 2001 and, and she's been married to me since 2006 not knowing a lot of what's going on in the intelligence community because I'm not allowed to say a lot of things, but very, just like yourself, a very inquisitive mind and wanting to get to the truth, to to the truth of things. So I, I think a lot of, of what you say is very important right now. And I will say that I agree with your comparison of the Snowden and Manning. I mean, like I told you before, you know, when I was I was deployed to Iraq when when the Manning information came out, and I was very upset. And I, I was us as a whole in the intelligence community were very upset because we thought that that was putting a target on our backs. And then when the Snowden stuff came out, it was I know for a fact it was far exceeding anything that uh, Chelsea Manning had put out, and that kind of got pushed brushed to the side. That you know she she actually was putting out information, like you said, that was that was secret, which is the the different levels of classification. You have unclassified, which can just, depending on what it is, now it's called CUI. It used to be called for official use only, which should just go out to personnel that need to know. Then you have secret, which kind of is detrimental to, to national security. And then you have top secret, which is extremely detrimental to national security and what the stuff that Snowden released was sensitive compartmentalized information, CUI or I, and that is completely detrimental to the intelligence. So I agree with you. I see a lot of the differences in that. But with that, even so, there was a thought a few years ago in my mind that sort of the conservative mindset was pro-military, pro-intelligence community, and then Trump happened. And he was a a big proponent of being anti the intelligence community. He didn't trust the intelligence community. And that sort of has shifted the narrative 
on the intelligence. I would like to get your if you if you wanted to give get your opinion on if you've seen the same thing or if maybe I'm just being crazy. No, I think you're about spot on about that. I mean, what's interesting to me, you know, is is so much of like the fringe of the Internet has become the mainstream. But I, I don't look at it just as like a new phenomenon. I think that the lack of public understanding and other political questions about, you know, that probably probably go all the way. I would say that I would begin this era with the invasion of Iraq and 9-11. If you look at like the trust in the intelligence community after the debacle, the pre-war, quote unquote, pre-war debacle, which is a really, I think, a really reductive way to think about the Iraq war personally. But that's oftentimes what's brought up. You know, it's like George Bush went to war for Halliburton, you know, in Iraq or in Afghanistan and and in Iraq was like part of like whatever. I mean, if we're really going to be precise about this decision, this national security foreign policy decision of the Bush Jr. era, we have to really go back to the Gulf War and the way in which containing Iraq was really difficult because of the end of the Cold War. So using a Cold War era containment on ballistic missiles, which allowed Russia to skirt the edges of that, sorry, allowed Iraq to skirt the edges of that, created a scenario that ultimately led to, you know, and, you know, the some of the, the, the foreign policy decisions about, you know, Saddam Hussein in terms of him being he, he, even he said, you know, he had to give Iran the appearance that he was building these weapons for his, you know, these national security interests. Right. So there were analytic flaws and there was, you know, officially, you know, according to like the congressional reports for all the the, the committee that investigated WMDs, you know, there was no, quote unquote, politicization. But the public narrative and even the. I th- which I think has some credibility, was that there was politicization of intelligence or at least a completely negligent and or deficient process within DIA and in the CIA and the other intelligence components that were part of that assessment that led to like the burn notice on curveball and all these kinds of uh, non-burn notice on curveball and all these other kinds of issues that led to our invasion, Right. But you could even look at that issue. I want to say this because it's not sort of spoken, in, I think, at depth enough. And I'm not an expert on this. But like, even if you look at the way U.S. began to fight wars in the Gulf War era with air power, you know, where we don't have boots on the ground and there's less of a political calculus. So we're more reliant on intelligence to some degree. But, you know, a lot of times when we're in the midst of these massive generational and socioeconomic and technological changes, we have this kinds of luck kind of like analytic flaw in our thinking, which is that things are going to be like they were during the Cold War and or, you know, all those things, I think all those analytic, you know, flaws, whether it's in foreign policy thinking and or I think more operational thinking within the military and in the intelligence community led to where we're at now. And one of the big problems I think we have as a society is not so much just our factionalism, it's more a matter of the fact that we don't really quite understand our landscape, you know, and just as there's been a decrease, let's say, in foreign intelligence collection with human intelligence in the CIA that's spoken about anecdotally in the public. Also, newsrooms, they don't have bureaus in every single country. They don't have these budgets where even in an open source environment, we're collecting on stuff, you know, every, and, and as we've seen with the growth of social media and such, 
the intelligence community is becoming more public about its reliance on open source. You know, it's you know, it's eighty percent, and then like you know, whatever gets into the the president's daily brief is like the signals intelligence at like tiny, you know, twenty percent of like the jewels of U.S. intelligence, right? Depending on the issue, maybe they have a human asset or whatever. Like, I think it's like. I, I don't know what the percentage is. I, obviously, signals intelligence has been our main main thing, but open yeah. is obviously, you know, very important. I don't know what the percentage is, so I don't want to like float wrong percentage points. So similarly with newsrooms, I mean, they're not they don't have boots on the ground because if this if a war is fought with air power, they're not going to you know rarely are they going to embed or get a chance to embed in like Syria or you know or places where we have had you know, our military, you know, advisors or such, or places where like, if we're fighting, you know, air power campaigns where with friendly forces on the ground that we're, you know, allied with. And so all these contribute to like the same, like the press can make the same kind of analytic errors in intelligence that the military might make because they're relying on only open source intelligence because they don't have somebody on the ground. Or if they do have somebody on the ground, they might not be able to like do the after action reports on certain things the way that they and battlefields have changed too. I mean, like, you know, you used to have this kind of really great sense of the Geneva Conventions and like you have press is written on and no one's going to fire on you. Well, ISIS doesn't care if you are, as we can see with what they've done to people like Foley and others right. killed. So we're fighting against terrorists too, or I mean, that's like a fun we're fighting against insurgents that don't really give a shit about your, you know, press. Yeah. So all no, that's a hundred percent true. I, I wanted to mention all these things because these really actually are the things that complicate these other calculus that we make about how intelligence is covered, how our wars are covered, and then what the calculus is politically. Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought up the open source intelligence stuff because I have spent about a decade promoting open source intelligence and and how that will actually benefit not just journalists but the the military on the ground and we kind of saw that in the lead up to Russia's invasion on Ukraine the the only reason i was able to say with a def- with any certainty that Russia was going to invade Ukraine you know february 24th was because of open source intelligence it, it was not a secret that they were putting troops on the border so have have you seen that within journalism where they are trying to focus more on open source? Go go on Twitter and see what what's happening. Go on Telegram and get on these public Telegram forums and see what people are being are, are saying. And is that a benefit to the population that journalists are actually doing that, or, or do you see there's some flaws with it? I think the open source environment has changed and is changing as we speak. So what we thought of open source collection from like a civil society journalist, journalistic point of view is not what it's turning into where deception, but deception's always been at play and propaganda has always been at play. But I think that the actors that are involved in information wars are so much more sophisticated about social media today than they were 10 years ago in 2013, or let's say 210. I'm going to say 210. I mean, every social media in Obviously, open source is, it's arguable, there's a debate within academic community of whether or not social media intelligence is its discipline within intelligence, 
but I'm going to lump it together with open source and just say that, you know, yeah. open source intelligence can include everything from gray literature to court documents to, you know, manuals like that the army puts out on how to operate certain machinery. I mean, that's also open source intelligence if it's available publicly. So, yeah, it's absolutely become critical to the journalistic, you know, world. And it has the same kinds of issues that it might have for the intelligence community too. It's like, you know, what you see online isn't how do you know it's true? It's like Right. Well, yeah, it used to be the old the old joke. If you remember the the uh, there was this commercial maybe 10, 15 years ago where you have to believe everything that's on the internet and the guy is like a goofy, chubby white dude and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I have a my I have a French model. I found her on the internet, and so that that kind of thing. Do you think that has played a part into um, kind of some of these major publications like the New York Times getting things wrong because they have focused on open source? I think the New York Times and the Washington Post in particular, but I'm going to say the New York Times right now. I think they've actually done really well on the open source front. Like I really do, and I think that that. You know, whether one agrees or disagrees with the general culture of the New York Times or like whether, you know, you're, you can be, a, you know, you can criticize Maggie Haber, Haberlin or you can Haberman or you can say, you know, wow, it's great that we have a journalist that has access. I mean, that's the way I look at her. It's like, OK, as long as the ecosystem is healthy, where you have a person who has access to the president and has the president's like favor to some degree to tell information and then hopefully you have people who can give you the counter narrative or the fuller picture because you want a full picture. You don't want to yeah. say, don't cover, we don't want access journalists or we don't want the New York Times. I mean, we need the New York Times. We need papers of record. But you can even say we need a, I don't know if you want to, I don't know if there is a conservative journalist, but I'm. that's a joke. I love it. <laughs> that's a joke. I'm only yes, because, I you know, you know, intellectuals tend to be cosmopolitan. I mean, that's what they are, you know, but like if you don't have local journalists on the ground, for example, and you have people, you know, it doesn't even have to be foreign. It's like, look at how crappily we've covered middle America. Right. You know, how many how many local papers exist anymore? And so absolutely, you know, open source is, is, a, is a major aspect of, of news collection right now. So what's your opinion on these, this real big push for journalists that have gone away from the New York Times, gone away from the Washington Post, and started Substack, our Substack publications. So we just recently saw this is in the, the so this is going to come out in the beginning of March, but we're mid beginning mid-February, and Seymour Hirsch has put out an article very detailed on how the, it was the United States with the U.S. Navy and Norway that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline using an anonymous single source. And so you've got also, you know, people like Matt Taibbi, who has been more, I don't want to say pro-Russia, but not, not so much. Interests. Yes. Incidentally sympathetic to Russian interests. <laughs> yes. What's your opinion on Substack? First of all, Substack as a whole, and then any I mean, if you want to talk about specific journalists, let's definitely get into that. I will open the floor to you for as I, long as you want to talk about that. I always look at these phenomenon from a point of view of well, how, where did they come from? 
And so for me, when I look at the Substack thing, I think it, I think of it, it's something I've said quite often over the last actually 10 years, uh, even longer. I think the first time I wrote about this was in 2005. And it has to do with how the news media industry is really mirroring what happened to the movie industry with the decline of the factory system. So where you have like, if you want to market a movie nowadays, you have to have a Tom Cruise or, or, or this is up to like, up until like, let's say the last three years, because I think it's changing again. So the era that we've been in that we're moving out of, you had to have like a, to have a blockbuster, you had to have a star attached to it. And that, you know, obviously, you know, making films or labor is oftentimes the largest cost below the line for production. So that would be your foreign bureaus and stuff. And you see like a lot of cases where with the growth of digital technology, that has radically changed or you have like movies becoming floating factories. You know, I want to just say something that we don't often talk about in the public discourse because our public discourse is like a crazy house, a funhouse mirror. There were more, in 2005, there were more below the line technicians who made film or television in the United States than steel workers. Media and information that includes consulting, you know, consulting information technology, blah, blah, blah. That is the large, you know, in in the 2005 era, we had, we didn't have a surplus of balance of trade in any other sector except for media and information. That is how the United States, that's the the engine of U.S. IP sector and media and information. And it's one sector that we have so poorly conceptualized as a public because it has not only an economic benefit to the United States, but it has also a social benefit, meaning to say, you know, U.S. media and films have been predominantly up until this era, most of what the world has digested, you know, and that actually also sends a message. I'm not suggesting that directors become arms of the U.S. government, but nevertheless, we would be, you know, in denial of not recognizing that our art and our information was consumed by the rest of the world. And that's changed now. So in that environment with the newsroom, you have Substack. Substack is like, you know, Tom Cruise starts his own thing. You know, it's like the institutional aspects of the New York Times or the Washington Post or these kinds of factory systems that we had in media are shifting now where the person who has power is the Glenn Greenwald who got the scoop from the source. Um, on the Cy Hirsch question, I mean, one of the phenomenon that I find thing about Cy Hirsch is like some former Intel officers, there is a subgroup within news media who cover intelligence or national security and or who f- were f- are former CIA officers who just go, bong, just, they just go bonkers. And what happens to them and why they become that? I think of like Robert David Steele is a perfect example. You know, someone who was actually taken very seriously at one point by certain elements within the intelligence community, maybe more military than civilian intelligence. Fine, whatever. He you know, people might have thought like, oh, well, his his views are, you know, not part of the public face of the intelligence community because the intelligence community is obviously diverse. It has all types of politics. Yeah. Would you say it's more conspiratorial? Robert David Steele? I yeah. would say beyond, beyond conspiratorial into a land of, you know, of hubristic sensibilities because, you know, I think one of the biggest things with covering intelligence as a journalist that is so critical is understanding that these operations are built 
so that there's plausible deniability. And right. that deception is an aspect of intelligence and all of this other stuff. So there's a kind of, like for me as a journalist, I like to stand above the rabbit hole and recognize like, oh, I'm on the edge and down there is a rabbit hole. And I could spin my wheels and go crazy, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here on the edge of this rabbit hole and recognize that there are certain things that I will never be able to know. So is it then like chasing money? It's because so yeah, I know you said these Cy Hirsch, that's that's probably what journalists know as a as a Seymour Hearst, but he's Cy Hearst. That's that's sort of the name. To me, he put that out. It was his first sub substack article, and then he said, please join my substack, pay me. Is that sort of what's going on there? Or, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have any inside knowledge on the single source that he has. So maybe he has something that we no one knows about. But it just is very peculiar to me that that would be the first article that was written. I'm not going to get into the mind of Cy Hirsch. I mean, I've never spoken to Cy Hirsch. I've asked about him to people who have worked for him or with him. I mean, somebody that I actually would consider has been a mentor to me over the last, you know, 10 years, who is a seasoned national security journalist, was his researcher. For and I've asked about him. I've also asked about uh, Robert David Steele to people in the intelligence community. Like, what the hell is that? Like, what happened? Yeah. Because it's hard to, people oftentimes talk about the controversy or the conspiracy of it, but it's like, what happened psychologically? Because this is like actually something that you can see. It's not everybody, but there is a subset. Why is he doing it? I mean, look, you could say the same thing about some intel practitioners. Like when they start companies, are they doing it to like make a name for themselves? Or these are fundamentally human political questions that every human has. You know, it's like, what makes one person morally blind? What is driving them? Is it their unconscious? Is it something that happened to them when they were a kid? Is it a resentment? Like, is it like their, you know, is it their, I don't know, their thirst for knowledge? You know, their noble cause corruption? I, I don't want to only spin it in a negative light because journalists are obviously critical to, 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 to liberal democracy and to Western democracies, generally speaking. But, you know, obviously... We don't do really well as moderns. Like, I'm going to speak in that term. That's why, like, I think classical political philosophy is a good thing, a framework. We don't often do well talking about politics because we think somehow as moderns that there's such a thing that's called science, social science, and that it's unbiased and that human beings can be objective. And if they can't be objective, that means there's no truth. It's like no society depends on functional truths. Courtrooms depend on functional truths. Justice depends on functional truths. Intelligence analysis depends on functional truths. Journalists depends on functional truth. And functional truth doesn't mean that it's like moral relativism. It just means that it's limited. Human knowledge is limited, right? But we don't do well with those kinds of discussions in the modern world because we're so involved in this kind of like modernist, postmodernist experiment or, or I think experiment's the wrong word, project of collapsing things. And, you know, the problem with that is like, I, I, I can only talk about it this, uh, this way, but I'll try to make it more like accessible to just anybody who doesn't give a crap about philosophy. The problem with that is like the modern person, it's like Nietzsche has this passage about he, this, he uses the term man, the modern boy or young man. He's like, looks at history as like, almost like I'm paraphrasing him and I'm probably butchering him horribly, but it's like, 
you know, he can select whatever he wants. And just like, so we we oftentimes talk about how biased things are or post-truth, but sometimes we forget that these questions are eternal and perennial to human nature and humankind. And if you read ancient texts, you can see it in those texts. You know, even the discussion of rhetoric, you know, in the Gorgias of Plato. And I'm going to stop talking like that because that can really bore people to death. Oh, well, see, I'm I'm a huge philosophy person. So okay. you're, you're speaking my language here. Okay, good. You know, all these issues are like, and we could talk about like what's right and then also what's practical because politics and tele-analysts and journalism is also about what's practical, you know, and we sometimes lose that a little bit. Yeah, I think I, I think 100% we, we do lose. I would say we all have a, a yearning for the truth. There, there's been this discussion of what is truth. Is that a sort of tangible st- sticking on philosophy? Because I do love this conversation about truth. Is there a difference? And I'd love to get your answer on this. Is there a difference between, you know, putting out what is truth and then not to get on the ethical side of it, but what is truth and then what is just actually morally correct to do? Do you have those discussions when when you're thinking about posting something or putting something out there? I don't know if I have those discussions. Let me try to think. I have those thoughts. Right. I mean, I have those thoughts myself. You no, know, I've been so influenced by uh, Plato. I mean, I, I mean, one of the, I mean, the Republic. It's, it comes from the poli sci department, and a lot of times, people on social media. I have the weirdest social media profile because if you don't know me, and if you don't know, like some some people might be like, "What the hell is going on there?" But you know, I've I've always been really earnest about my social media profile. And sometimes, you know, I've always been also pretty disclosing about at the right time about the things that I'm thinking about or that are important to me. So sometimes it's a mishmash of personal stuff, but oftentimes I do actually give a shout out to the boys at The New Thinkery, which is a political theory podcast. Their teachers were either teachers or, you know, fellows of my teachers in political philosophy. So I love them because they know how to really get to the heart of those. I mean, they're experts, actually. They're they're PhDs about those ancient texts. And the reason why, you know, those ancient texts are important is because they can actually ask questions like you just asked about, you know, whether or not something, is there a difference? Well, first of all, the truth is something distinct from what is good, right? The judgment about what is good is is about values, and, you know, we have, for example, I mean, you could, I mean, even in like, obviously being able to perceive the truth of the matter, discrimination, right, is not only about the facts of the matter, but it could be also about impacts of one's actions and whether or not that's good or bad or maybe a mixture of both and being able to kind of suss out and parse all those kinds of... And so like originally you had talked about like, the attitude of Americans towards the military before mm-hmm. Trump, you know, there are different elements to, you know, I would say that a mix, like there's the truth and there's the good. And then above that, those two kind of components or ingredients, there's also wisdom, you know, and the thing, you know, and, there, and there's, you know, society, you know, politics, the problem with like one could argue with modern political science as a as a discipline 
is it's so focused on the social sciences that it oftentimes pretends that it is above those questions of the right. But obviously, our assumptions about what is good is like packed in to that. You know, you know how we view the best regime. What is the best regime? I mean, that's an ancient political question. So if we are doing a social study on police violence against Black Americans, or we are talking about some other social I, you know, thing that's bandied about, we oftentimes don't talk about why we think that's good or bad. And then we just sort of throw one of the things that we do that drives me batshit is, excuse my language, is like we oftentimes just couch it like in, well, that person is a Marxist or that person is a such and such. Yep. There is a lot of fascism alive. So I don't want I personally, I, I do personally think there is a lot of fascism and dangerous components in the American democracy that are, are, are troubling to me. And I do think as a country that this is my personal opinion. You know, I do think that race and racism is one of our you know, slavery has been one of our gravest sins that we are still contending with as a nation. I do think that Black America has been, in some cases, America's conscience and soul. I think, um, you know, but in the discussion of like this kind of like conservative versus liberal, or if you want to call it progressive or Marxist, whatever way you want to do it, I mean, the ideas themselves are worth considering at a deeper level. I mean, you know, you wouldn't have Marx if you didn't have Christianity, you know, right. or Thomas Aquinas. And so being able to kind of sometimes not be so reductive about it, you could still raise important political points about a critique of Marxism, that human beings are not fundamentally economic, that politics is not a science, you know, that it involves something about human matters, which deals with piety and what's good and bad. Uh, and that's not because we're unscientific. You know, you can actually give appreciation to these various components. Well, how do you have a just and stable liberal democracy that covers 3,000 miles across landmass mm. that has a disparate population? How do you deal with questions of, of race? And then separately also, and I just, and I will shut up right after this. I mean, clearly we're, we're talking as if people actually care about these things. But ultimately, you know, there are these drives within us, <clears throat> these erotic love of country, love of village, love of husband, love of you, these loves we have that, that are dangerous because they don't obey any law. You know, that's the leaker's mentality. It doesn't matter. I love the good, the good of this leak. That's Manning and Snowden if you think that they were ideologically radicalized. You know, it doesn't obey any law. Or Thumos, which is indignation, like you lose in war if you you know, if you continue, you have the ad, only an adversarial posture in war or in journalism where the government is only evil or your enemies only evil, you increase the stakes of you lose moral, you become morally blind. And you might actually even increase your secrecy to such a point because you're paranoid that you actually start to not function well inside yourself because you're in an echo chamber. You can make that critique about journalists in their echo chambers. You can make that critique about the army, you know? Yep. So I'm I'm so glad you brought up echo chambers because I, I really want to get your opinion on there is this I don't even know the right term for it but there there's this way society is going where we can no longer debate with each other because you know debating with somebody opposed to our ideas makes them either racist or Marxist or a Nazi or a socialist or, or any of those things. Do you think that? Is that valid or, and I'm honestly asking this because I do see some of the validity of, no, I'm not going to debate Hitler 
because hindsight, Hitler had a, a ton of, you know, bad policies and, and he killed many, many people. But when we're talking on the level of I would average society. I would debate Hitler, but I would debate Hitler as in a Socratic approach. I would debate. I, I love to hear that. Yeah. Debate Hitler to defeat to Hitler. To show, and I've done it. I mean, I've done it publicly with people who are, I think, you I mean, part of the reason why in, I did a master's where I basically wrote that ethical framework as part of my capstone for my in, Intel analyst degree is because I was close enough to the issues to be able to understand the ideas of obviously that milieu around information activists and WikiLeaks. And I wanted to be clear about why I disagreed or agreed, or I wanted to flesh them out on a theory level. Because not talking about this stuff gave it power because pe it, people didn't know how to think about these issues. I, I've had journalists who came from the same, you know, out of the Internet who were contending with the post Snowden Russia stuff. I had already been critical of Snowden when he went to 13 and I lost a lot of sort of like people thought like, oh, she's disagreeing with us. Like, what's up? You know, she's asking questions like, what's up with that? That group think. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to, for myself, but also for my colleagues, to be able to talk about these ideas at a really fundamental level outside of all the... But I would absolutely debate Hitler as I've debated people who are just basically regurgitating talking points about WikiLeaks, which it's not to say that I have one view of the organization. I mean, I have a pretty well-developed view, which has become more and more publicly known. But like at the same time, though... You know, whether or not, you know, how that should play out in a legal case, there are other interests at play. It's not just about Assange. It's about the press. So there are a lot of things. But what I would rather do is like have a real discussion about it where we all give weight to what needs to be given weight to than to pretend that, you know, Assange is a, an angel who only had good interests and, you know, it doesn't have a relationship with Russia. I mean, that's not true. Right. Know? So what this will be a very long form, a long form question. But what do you think is people's or specifically journalist trepidation? Because I will say people who are within journalism or within the media that I disagree with vehemently have gone on an opposing show. And I'll bring up an, an exact example that happened recently. Anna Kasparian. I don't know if you know Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks. I, um, I, I know of her. Yeah. So she's she's very, very liberal, very socialist, you know, democratic socialist thinking. And, and she went on and spoke with Ben Shapiro, who is, as we probably all know, is not a democratic socialist and, and is more of a right wing. He would call himself more conservative than anyone else within the Republican Party. But she sat down and talked with him and I found myself agreeing with her more than I thought I would. So it was actually, I would see it beneficial that she did that because now I will go and read more of her stuff. So what's the trepidation of some journalist or people within social media who refuse to debate these sort of topics? Well, I think it's the same kind of trepidation that the people in the intelligence community have of like even like talking, broaching these topics, because first of all, they don't want to lose their security clearance. OK. Right. And it's like at their next polygraph, it's like, did you ever talk about Snowden? And yeah, <laughs> <I'll> never. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean you 
kind of understand on some level or you're listening. Why are you talking to Alexa O'Brien or someone else? You know what I mean? Like, right. That was a joke. But, well, yeah. yeah. My, so my, my polygraph's coming up. So I'll have to discuss that with that. So I'll just uh, I'll talk to you after that about all that. Just kidding. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, my my academic advisor was in charge of analytic integrity for the intelligence community. So awesome the person I wrote this paper under, you know, I can talk to anybody, you know what I mean? Like I, I and I've had enough like, you know, serious work out that I pretty much I think people understand what I'm in good faith what I'm up to. Um, so like, why don't they do it? It's groupthink. It's it's fear. And, you know, I don't want to say that dismissively, though, because I am not I'm susceptible to it as well. Every human being is to some degree or another, you know, in oppressive regimes, it could be as much as why didn't the Soviet citizens revolt against the Soviet system? Or why didn't East Germans, you know, overturn the East German government back before the Cold War? You know, it, you could say it's consumer pacification. And of course, everybody loves honors. You know, everybody wants to be honored by their, maybe they think they deserve it, or maybe they feel that they've arrived. And in the social media environment, I mean, when I started to make a name for myself with the Manning stuff, one of the great things that it gave me when I actually started to get access is I started to see how things were made. But I don't, I don't, I don't think, I'm glad I did that. That was really helpful for me because it kind of let me see like how the progressive agenda gets set in the United States. Who has influence on, you know, you could say the same thing about the conservative agenda too. You know, we as a society, I don't think we always do a great job nowadays. I'm not going to, on the race issue, I would set that aside. I think we're doing better on the race issue, talking about the race issue. I want to put that aside because I think that that's a special issue in America that needs special, it's, it's specific discourse, you know? Right. But in other issues, we don't really do well talking about fundamental ideas because we just don't know how to anymore. You know, maybe we're not... Maybe we're not learning it. And that is a, it's not, I don't want to pretend that that's an easy issue because if you want to talk about the books of like, I think the great books, the great books are how one way you learn how to talk about those issues with your opposing party, quote unquote. Or, you know, I think also we have this kind of adversarial view of the cat, each other, um, to that is real. I mean, I'd be, I'm not going to pretend that America is a government built on an ancient unicorn burial mat and that human beings aren't political. We all are political. But I think that sometimes we don't have the way of thinking through these issues. So because we don't, we don't know which questions to ask always. And separately, we try to then cast our opponent in black and white and not always get to the core kind of political question. Some of those are temporary questions. Some of those, and they might be built, you know, specific modern phenomenon. I'll give you an example. Like, well, actually, let me just say this before I do. We could talk about Marxism in a really intelligent way in the context of like the internet, in the sense of like, or a finite resources. And you could look at it as like the commons. It's like a, a libertarian is going to say everything needs to have property, blah, 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 blah you know, game theory when it comes to like, you know, do we do, do we need to have a commons? You know, what's what's fundamentally on its root, 
the strengths of libertarianism and the weaknesses of it? What are the strengths of Marxism and the weaknesses of it? If we can get to those kinds of questions, we can begin to actually take our counterparty with some seriousness if they're speaking genuinely. Yeah, I think that's some of the issue is, especially today's society with social media, there's a lot of grifters who don't actually believe a lot of the stuff they're saying. But the more extreme you say something, the the more clout you might get or the, the more influence you might get. And I, and I like to say it in terms of, if you go on Twitter, you could say something like, you could talk about flat earth theory and you could get hundreds of thousands of other people who will agree with the same thing. And that seems like a lot of people. And, and when you're talking about a personal relationship with 100,000 people, that is a lot of people. But when you're talking about 8 billion people on a platform, it's actually a very small portion of society. But you start to feel that what you're saying is, you know, common speak. And then when someone wants to debate you on that, you actually don't have enough information on the matter and, and you lose the debate. So it's kind of scary in, in that term. Oh, I've lost my debate. So now my entire personality is demolished and I no longer have this personality of who I, I don't know if you see that within, within journalism. I know within, I could tell you within the intelligence community, that happens a lot. You, you make a prediction and it falls flat. It, it doesn't come about. And so you lose some of your career because of it. And I don't know if, if journalists have that same conversation of if I get this wrong or if I debate wrongly, I could lose my... I think that the phenomenon is common to every human. It's even common within families. Yeah. I mean, like an addiction, for example, with families, like and like, you know, but we're talking about the truth. So professions that deal with information... Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true. I think, you know, I don't think journalists, it depends on which type of journalist too. I think journalists are always concerned about getting it wrong because there is that credibility. But there are actually, um, I think journalists maintain their credibility by admitting when they're wrong, or at least that was the way it used to be. I mean, so much of what we're talking about within these professions are so dependent on the values of society, generally speaking. And when deception and demagoguery, I would say demagoguery is so prevalent in our debate you know it becomes about power it's about who can who can it doesn't matter what's true it it what matters is who wins because who wins is it and that's like a human problem but i think also a lot of our society and group think is dependent on the piety that we put towards certain values or characteristics i mean if you ever want to feel like I just watch a documentary like on the Cold War from like 20 years ago and you have people talking and it's like, oh my God, it's like sanity. It's like, what the heck? These people are so mature and adult. <laughs> like, do you remember when people were adults? You know, like that kind of feeling. Yeah. I think people have that conversation all the time. Of, do you remember when there was like discourse, like proper discourse? And it's not even just in the United States. We're talking globally. The, the influence of misinformation and the, the reason conspiracy theories can advance so much is because they are rooted in a small fact, where it may be. So, so that's an easy way for a conspiracy theory to get into the mainstream is you call somebody crazy for saying something. 9-11 was an inside job. And then they, they start piecing together things. 
of, well, this happened and this happened, so that must mean it was an inside job. Well, those two things are true. That does, that's not causality. That doesn't, it, it, it was actually this way. But if, when you call the person a liar or an idiot and those kind of bits come out as truth, it gets people to, uh, I don't know, it, it gets people to question everything. And I think we have a problem. It is good to question things. But in society today, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we have turned a corner to questioning absolutely everything that comes about. So, you know, there's been a large discussion about the issues of too much secrecy. Too much secrecy breeds conspiracy, right? You know, Moynihan, the late senator, wrote a book on secrecy and about, you know, you can even look in, I think, in texts on religion and secrecy and conspiracy. And there's a, a human phenomenon of secrecy and conspiracy. You, it, you know, Moynihan's example is the 1970s activist who's looking for his FOIA profile from the FBI, that it's almost like a badge of honor, right? Now, it's not to say that the CIA or other entities, the FBI, didn't conduct illegal or immoral operations, you know, that involved U.S. citizens, you know, maybe not to the exact degree as the talking points of the church committee or such. I mean, like, I'm not going to minimize what happened in South America or anything like that. But I think also that those things are oftentimes also talked about in this very narrow kind of view, not outside of the Cold War or other phenomenon. Separately, you know, I I think that in in an information environment that's glutted, where attention becomes almost relevant or in line with where we would place mentalization or where we would place, you know, just the gaps of not knowing create the conspiracy. So what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't even have to be official secrecy. It could just be that there's so much information and we're only focused in this glutted information environment on such and such. So it's a kind of de facto secrecy that creates conspiracy. And then you have, you know, our method of search, which is dependent on either a black box algorithm and or, you know, has these links that, you know, jump to each other. And you can see that in the QAnon where it's like, oh, you know, JFK and RFK and, you know, this and it's mixing with like some, you know, community online that has to do with like something religious or spiritual or new agey or cultish. And some guy who lives in uh, some middle class neighborhood who has never engaged in politics, but he knows that like things aren't the way they used to be and they're complicated. Well, he's seen a video online of some disgruntled guy who came out of the CIA talking about how corrupt the CIA is and he doesn't know much about it, but then he goes on this like board and he gets friends because they're telling him like, "Uh, hey, if you think this, you're going to suddenly have a community of people around you who like you or maybe you even get clout because you somehow do whatever. I mean, these are like psychological and societal phenomena that are intermingling and creating what we have now. The question Yeah, I is, agree. I agree with you, with you 100%. You said you had another point. Well, I think that that's actually my point. It's like that information asymmetry, that some of this is not just like, it's so easy for us to, I do this myself too. It's like, okay, yeah, these are questions about values sometimes are questions about our capacity to think but so much of this is really dependent on you know how society's changed and 
and I, I say that because I think that, you know, we're gone. We're never going back to pre-216 election, to pre, you know, Russia invasion of Ukraine. We're never going back to pre-pandemic. It's only going to get harder, I think. That's my personal opinion. It's only going to get more confusing. And, you know, I think that we need to sometimes stop. This is my personal view. I mean, like, and, and believe me, just because it's my personal view doesn't mean that other people should listen to me. I mean, really. I mean, I don't have the answers here. But like, I just think that, you know, the reason why someone like Zelensky, outside of information war, or the reason why someone like Zelensky can be appealing, there's good demagoguery too. And it's built on something that is less of a spectacle and more rooted in like real things that people struggle. I mean, one of the reasons why I am the way I am even on social media is because it's like you can lose like you lose the you lose the kind of heart that you need to make the kinds of decisions that you need to make in confusing times if you lose your kind of fundamental humanity. But yeah, I think that oh, sorry, keep going. I'm not rich in power. You know, I don't have like I, I don't make a million dollars a year like Greenwald. So there's right. a cost to it too. Well get on Substack. Maybe you can you can get some of the monies. <laughs> <laughs> Get that YouTube money. Go on YouTube. Well, I, I do want to say, Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. I've taken up quite a bit of your time so so we could stop here. But I do want to give you a few minutes to let everyone know where to find you, what you're doing now. Do you have any any projects to look for in the future? So right now I'm working with Bill Arkin on a timeline that he has created for of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's one of the projects I'm working on. And I just finished a, um, a a slew of documentary projects that I was a researcher on. And I am probably jumping on to another one that's more crime intelligence related in the next week or so. Awesome. Well, we'll we will definitely look for that. I'm on Twitter at Alexa D. O'Brien. Yes. <laughs> Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Put out putting out some some great journalist stuff, but also some fun personal things. I, I might say because I, I do follow you on Twitter, and and do get a kick out of some of the random stuff that you do post. Yeah, so it, I, it's a fun time. Yeah, it, thank you. I appreciate that. We will link all of that in the show notes. Once again, Alexa, thank you. This was maybe the most scared I was to to interview somebody because of. I think people heard, I, I told you this before, but you're very deliberate in the language that you use, in, in the things that you say, and you make sure it's fact-based. I also love how you do what I do, which is disclose, this is a personal opinion. You don't have to listen to me for this personal opinion. Thank you very much. And as I tell everybody at the end, please, in this world that we are going through today, stay safe out there. Thanks for having me.